Well, uh, welcome to week number three. This is our third week of uh, six weeks where we're studying through the book of Genesis and we're thinking about origins, as you know. Uh, Over the last couple of weeks, we have considered the origin of our universe. We talked about the creation story. And then last week, we considered the origin of our hope as we were talking about the flood story. And so in week number one, as we were considering the origin of the universe, you'll remember that we made this definitive statement that God created the universe. By the way, let me just take a poll on both campuses. If you believe in fiat creation, creation by the declaration of God, would you shout amen? Amen. I'm with you, man. I do too. I believe that God created the heavens and the earth in six days. This is what the Bible says. And we learned that he did that with purpose. Uh, We talked about the purpose of his glory. The heavens declare the glory of God. We talked about the fact that he made the earth so that it would be inhabited. Isaiah 45, 18 tells us that's why the earth was made, to be inhabited. Um, We talked about a general revelation that God created the heavens and the earth to reveal his power to us. That's what Romans chapter 1 says, that we're without excuse. We can't say we don't know there's a God because revelation comes through uh, creation itself. So God created the universe with a purpose. And then last week we talked about the fact that God recreated the earth through a global flood. He recreated the earth. I don't mean to say that he threw the old earth away and made a new one, but the effects of the global flood were such that the geography and the topography and the geology of the earth was totally transformed uh, by this global flood in Genesis chapter number six. If you were with us last week, you'll remember that In that flood, there were only, of all the people on the earth, there were only eight survivors. Noah, his wife, their three sons, and their three wives. Those eight people survived, according to the book of Genesis, they survived on the ark for a year. And when finally the flood waters receded, then God invited them into a new world. He invited them to come off the ark. Let me, uh, you have your Bibles open to Genesis 11. Turn back one page. Let me read to you from Genesis 8, verse number 16. Here's the command of God. The waters now have receded. In Genesis 8, 16, God says to Noah, Go forth from the ark, you and your wife and your sons, and your sons' wives with you. Verse 18 says, And Noah went forth, he left the ark uh, with his sons, his wife, his sons' wives, uh, they were all with him. So they come off of the ark and then God gives them a command. The command comes in chapter nine and verse number one, here it is. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Now, Imagine this, they're the only eight people alive on the planet. Literally, the scripture says that the whole, uh, that all of mankind and the whole of the earth was destroyed in the flood. And now when the waters recede, they come off the ark and there literally are only eight people alive on planet earth. 
Well, God says to them that they are uh, now to replenish. Do you see it in chapter 9 and verse number 1? Replenish the earth. The word replenish, by the way, is, is obvious. I know we know this. The word means to fill or to fill up. It's the same word, by the way, that's used in Genesis 1. I think it's verse 28 in Genesis 1, uh, where the Bible says that God commands Adam and Eve, uh, commands the man and the woman to, to fill the earth. It is the command to, to, to uh, fill up the earth. And so there's an, Im- there's an implied command. It's not really just implicit. I mean, it, is, it really is rather explicit in the verse When he says in verse 1, to replenish the earth, it means to spread out in the earth, right? If you're going to fill the earth, you can't all hang together. If you're going to fill the earth, you've got to spread out. If I said to you today on either campus, let's go fill this church. Let's not just stay here in the worship center. Let's go in every classroom, go replenish the church. Go fill the church. And we would know there, there are other spaces we need to go to. This is the command You were to spread out. Well, that's the command that's given. Let's look at the reality of what happens in Genesis 11, verse number 1. You follow along as I read this text. Genesis 11, 1 says, And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. It means they, they spoke with one lip. That is, they all spoke the same language and even the same accent. Now, let's stop for just a minute. You understand, don't you? You can speak the same language and not really be speaking the same language. Can I get an amen in the room, right? (laughs) Because accent matters and intonation matters. And uh, sometimes we speak the same language, but it's with a bit of a different accent. Well, this says they spoke the same language, but the same accent as well. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, go to, King James says, it means come on or come now, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And so they, they had brick for stone and they had slime or tar um, for mortar. And they said, come, let us build us a city and a tower This tower's top may reach unto the heaven, and let us make a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men built. And the Lord said, Behold, the people are one, and they have all one language. And this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they shall imagine themselves to do. Come now, verse 7 says, God speaking, let us go down and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth And they left off or stopped building that city. Therefore, uh, is the name of that city called, the name of that place called Babel, because the Lord there did confound the language of all the earth. And from there did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. 
Now, exactly what is happening here, I mean, the, the passage, the text is really, really very clear, but let me walk through it with you just to make sure that you, you're wrapping your head around it. So the waters of the flood recede in chapter number eight. Chapter nine and verse number one, God says, now here's my command, I want you to be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth, go spread out and feel the earth. So they get off of the ark. The Bible tells us in chapter 11 and verse two, they begin to make their way in a southwesterly direction. They're moving from the east. We know that they're moving toward the south. Now, the the Bible tells us that the ark landed on the mountains of Ararat. We don't know exactly where. There have been many expeditions. You might be aware people have claimed to have found pieces of the ark or have evidence of of a discovery of the actual ark of Noah. Uh, we, We don't know where the ark was other than to say where it landed, other than to say that it landed on the mountains of Ararat. Uh, This is in uh, the area of Turkey and Syria in a mountain range where the elevations reach upwards of 17,000 feet. And so it would be reasonable that as the waters begin to recede, this would be at those highest peaks, as the water begins to recede, that this is where the the boat, the ark, lodges, where where it, it lands. They begin to make their way down from that high elevation down to what the Bible says in verse number two is the plains in the land of Shinar. Now, we know from other passages in Scripture that this would be the area in modern-day Iraq. So this would be, in fact, many people believe that Babel ultimately becomes Babylon, and Babylon is the location of modern-day Baghdad. But in this area, the Iran-Iraq region, there between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers, in this beautiful fertile crescent is where they migrated to, where they begin, well, verse number two says, they begin to dwell there. The elevation of that plain of Shinar is only about 100 feet above sea level, and so they make their way down from the mountains, 16,000, feet high, now down to the, to the actual level of, of uh, sea level, or very near it. About a journey of 400 miles, they migrate. Not really all that far. It wouldn't have taken them long to do it. Verse 2 says, this is where they set up housekeeping. Do you see it? There they dwelt. And the word means, here they sat down. That means they're not going anywhere else. They've they've taken their seat, and they have decided that here in this beautiful plain, between these rivers, here would be a beautiful place for us to live. Now, I can imagine they begin to set up housekeeping there. They begin to build their homes there. Their families begin to grow. I can imagine the years passing quickly, and their families growing larger and larger, and that happening really rapidly. Uh, In fact, the Bible tells us in verse number 10, if you look at chapter 11, verse 10, it tells us about um, the generations of Shem, and it says that Shem, who was one of the sons of Noah, Shem was 100 years old, and he begot uh, Arpachsad two years after the flood. So, So we know that within two years after the waters receded, Noah now has grandchildren, and we don't think that Arpachsad is is even his first son. And so we can also envision that Ham and Japheth had sons and daughters very quickly as well. My point is that once the babies start coming, they multiply pretty quickly. Can I get an amen from a grandparent in the room? This is the way it works, right? 
See, I mean, you go from, I'm suddenly a grandparent, now I'm a grandparent of four. It just happens like that. And so you can imagine their family growing larger, and they're all living together there in the land of Shinar. Now, this sounds wonderful. Sounds like an old family home place, doesn't it? It sounds like some properties here in Western North Carolina where people just, you know, buy up acreage and all the, all the kids build and then the grandkids build and, and, and we all just stay together living in very close proximity to one another. Sounds like a great plan until you remember the command of chapter 9, verse 1. Look at it again. Chapter 9, verse 1, the command is clearly given Really, there are two commands. God bless no one his sons. Here's the first command. Be fruitful and multiply. Check. <laughs> They're doing that. They're being fruitful and they are multiplying. They are having children. But then here's the second command. And spread out or fill up or replenish the earth. Not so much. They were not living in obedience to that command, but rather than, than spreading out and filling the earth, they were holding close together. Now, this is not simply a failure on their part to, to, to follow through with God's command. It's not, it's not just a sin of omission. It is truly an act of rebellion. And we know it because of what they say, what the text tells us that they say, in chapter 11. Look at chapter 11 and verse number 4. Here are their words. They said, come on, let us build a city for ourselves. Let us build a tower that would reach up to heaven. Let us make a name for ourselves. Why should we do this? Lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the earth. Hello, that's exactly what God told them to do, was to scatter abroad upon the face of the earth. And they said, no, let's not scatter abroad upon the face of the earth. Let's stay together. Let's build a city and let's stay together. Now, are you surprised by this? Is there anything about this that causes you to go, really? I mean, you're within a generation or two of the flood coming as God's retribution for the rebellion of mankind. Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth, all of the original ark inhabitants, all of the ones who went into the flood are still living. And now their children and grandchildren are already beginning to say no to God. Can we learn something from this? Does it take us a very long time to begin to shift back into old patterns of thinking? Not very long at all. And when you read the passage in chapter number 11, it seems that their decision to disobey God, their decision to build this city, which ultimately is, is named Babel, is driven by a couple of things. One, I think it's driven by fear. I think you see this when the Bible says that they said, come, 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 let's, let's build a city so that we won't be scattered. It's, it's a fear that they, will, that they will lose contact with one another, that they'll lose connection with one another, that, that if they don't have a central location, a city with a tower, they can see from far distances that they can come and that can be their home, then they're going to they're gonna get separated from one another. They're afraid of that. And maybe, I don't know this for sure, but maybe they're afraid. What if God does it again? 
What if there's another flood? And if, and if we've moved far away, you know how horrible that flood was. And if, and if we're a long way away and we don't know that it's coming and we don't know an ark for rescue is being built, then we'll never get back to the ark. Maybe it was fear that God wouldn't keep his word. That God would in fact judge them again. And they wanted to be near safety. I, maybe a lot of other things as well. But it was driven by fear. I also think it was driven by pride. Because they said in verse number four, let us make a name for ourselves. Let us build up a city. We have a better plan than God. We will build a city to our own honor. Now loved ones, this is a double-edged sword. Fear and pride. And those two sins, fear and pride, have kept so many of us from living out the best life in God's blessing and in obedience to him that we could have enjoyed because we were too afraid. We didn't believe God would keep his word. We were too prideful. We wouldn't humble ourselves to obey him. And fear and pride held us back. I think it's exactly what's going on here in the plains of Shinar at this place called Babel. Well, because of their fear and pride, God intervened. Verse number seven. Verse seven says that God, speaking in this triune voice, come, let us go down and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. Verse seven says that he confused their language. He confused their language so that they would no longer be able to understand one another. Hey, if y'all are listening, shout amen. Watch this. God is in control of language. Amen? God controls our language. In this case, he, he caused them to begin to speak a language that the rest of them could not understand. In Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, he did the exact opposite thing miraculously by giving them the gift of tongues. Acts 2 and verse number 4 says, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues and other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. Acts chapter 2 is a totally different situation where God wants to get the gospel to a group of people. He has, he has um, some, some Galilean fishermen and a tax collector and a, and, and a few zealots and, and they don't know all the languages and so God suddenly equips them to speak these languages they don't understand. In one case, in Genesis, God confuses the language in the other case, God gives them a new language so that they won't be confused. Here's the point. God's in control of our language. Now listen to me. Some of us need to let God control our language. <laughs> Amen. Some of us need to, for the Holy Spirit to sanctify our language at school and sanctify our language on the, work, on the job site and in our place of business. And the way we speak to our wives or our kids or whatever, the point is God is in control of language. So he confuses their language. Because it became a place of confusion where they couldn't understand one another, verse 9 tells us that this place is called Babel. And it means what you would think. The word means confusion or confounding. But it's because they were confused. They were babbling to one another. Um, it's funny, last night, just last night, I said something to Tracy. And she said, what? And I said, you not hear me? She said, I heard you, but you were mumbling. <laughs> I was babbling. 
a number of years ago, Tracy and I were with our kids. We were heading on vacation. We were on our way up to um, New York, and uh, we stopped for gas and directions in Philadelphia. And so I'm, 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 I'm pumping gas in Philadelphia. This guy walks up. I'm asking him how to get back onto the highway or the interstate so I can continue our trip. And so I said, hey, listen, we're making our way up to, to uh, New York. And uh, can you tell me how to get back on the interstate? And he said to me these exact words. No, you feel dumb, don't It's exactly what he said. I said, excuse me? He said, no, you feel dumb, don't you? I said, I'm sorry, what did you say? So he slowed it down. You know you're in Philadelphia, don't you? You know you're in Philadelphia, don't you? But it was, no, you feel dumb, don't you? So just for purposes going forward, Philadelphia is Babel, all right? The point is, I was confused in Philadelphia, and they were confused here in Babel. So God, intervening because of their fear and pride and disobedience, confuses, confounds their language. Now, if you go back one chapter to chapter 10, you, you find out how they then begin to spread out. So here's the thing. Chapters 10 and 11 are not in chronological order, which is not unusual for the book of Genesis. So chapter 11 describes what happened in chapter 10. It's exactly the same thing that happens in Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 2 is a recap of what happened in Genesis chapter 1. So in Genesis 11, what you have is the, the reasoning for the events, the separation that uh, takes place in Genesis chapter number 10. And what becomes apparent when you read all of Genesis 10, and we're not going to read it all, but when you read Genesis 10, what becomes apparent is that the languages were not confused for everybody, but the languages were confused for the families of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So in other words, the families of Shem received one language, the families of Ham received another language, the families of Japheth received another language. Because Within those tribes, they understood one another and they migrated away together. But they could not understand the language with the neighboring tribes, with their cousins, because that's where the confounding or the confusion happened. I'm not going to read it all. Genesis 10 is an incredible chapter, really a table of the nations uh, and how the nations began to fill the earth. But let me just show you quickly in Genesis 10 and verse number 5, uh, speaking of the sons of Japheth, the tribes of Japheth, it says, By these were the isles of the Gentiles divided in their lands, everyone after his tongue, that's the, his language, after their families, that's the tribes, and then in their nations. So among the sons of Japheth, separated from the sons and the, the families of Shem and Ham, there, were there was a language which then they developed into tribes and into, or from their tribes, they developed into nations. If you look at verse 20, chapter 10, verse 20, same thing related to the sons of Ham, after their families, after their tongues and their countries and their nations. Verse 31, the sons of Shem. 
These are the sons of Shem after their families, after their tongues, in their lands, and in their nations. Now, all of that to say that these three tribes of these three sons of Noah began to spread out with their differing languages, multiplying and now truly replenishing the earth, forming nations, speaking different languages. Look at chapter 10, verse 32. Here's the bottom line. These are the families of the sons of Noah after their generations in their nations. And by these, that is by these families of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. There's the origin of the nations. So what you have is the, is the replenishing or the filling up of the earth with these uh, multiplying families of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The origin of the nations. Now, what is it that we are to take away uh, from this fact? Let me give you four things really, really quickly, and then we're going we're gonna to be finished, all right? So write them down. Number one is this. I, I would say that it's important, in fact, critical for us to learn from this passage that there are many nations, but only one race. There are many nations, but only one race. Now, anthropologists would argue with me on that and say, no, of course there's more than one race. There's, there's several different races in the earth. And yet, the fact of the global flood from Genesis chapter 6 and the reality that, that only eight people survived that flood, Genesis chapter 9, 10, 11 tell us, that only eight people survived that flood, here's what we know. That every person in the post-flood world originated with Noah and his, th- his wife and their three sons and their wives. We all trace our origin back to that single family. Which, which means that in Shem, Ham, and Japheth and their three wives were all of the genes necessary Uh, to produce the racial diversity that we see all over our world today. There are many nations, of course, and there are plenty of differences between us based on our nationality or our ethnicity or what we would call our race. There's differences in language. There's differences in culture. There's differences in skin tones. There there are all sorts of differences among us, but here's the fact. While we come from many nations, we are shaped by varying cultures. Our skin tone looks uh, different from that of some others because of where our ancestors lived and where our family came from. But here's the fact. We are all only one race, and it is the human race. We all trace our origins back to the sons of Noah and their wives. In fact, the Bible says this in Acts. Look at Acts 17 and verse 26 where it says, And he, God, has made from one blood, it means one man, he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings. The point is to say that God raises up kingdoms and takes them down. But the text is telling us that God has made all of us from every nation from one blood. That is that there is one race, the human race. Now what's the application of that? Why is that important? It simply is 
to say this. That because of that, we must understand that there should never be any hesitation among any of us to have fellowship with and community with any person from any culture of any origin or any race at any time because we are all of one. Amen? By the way, Jesus modeled this so beautifully when he went to the well in Sychar at Samaria and the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans and yet he said to that Samaritan woman, give me a drink of water. He wasn't just asking her to get water for him. He was asking her to share her cup with him. She said, what, are you kidding? You're a Jew and you're gonna drink from my Samaritan cup? You see, we should understand there should be no hesitation for us to sit together, no hesitation for us to eat together, no hesitation for us to serve together, to share the gospel together, to confront injustices together. We are all one race. Can I just say it plainly? I don't think you misunderstand it, and I'm confident you agree with me, but racism in any form is an affront to the glory of God Almighty. It should not exist among the people of God, ever, ever, in any, any degree whatsoever. In fact, I would say it this way, racism is the child of ignorance, and it is. Racism is the child of ignorance. It is the product of poor teaching, and it is the fruit of a foolish mind. There are many nations, but there is only one race. And that one race shares something in common, and it's this, jot it down, it is that the entire human race is separated from God. It doesn't matter who you are, which nation you come from, what language you speak. The entire human race is separated from God. I mean, think about it. In Genesis chapter number 11, uh, not too many years, just about a generation into this post-diluvian or post-flood world, God sees the rebellion, this disobedience, this fear-driven, this pride-motivated rebellion against his command to go and fill the earth. Everybody's going to stay together. And when he sees this disobedience this, this in chapter 11 and verse number 6, listen to what he says. The Lord said, behold, the people are one. They're supposed to be spreading out. I told them to multiply and replenish the earth. And yet they're staying together. They're one. And they all have one language. They've begun to rebel Look at verse 6. God says, and now nothing will be restrained from them in all that they imagine to do. What's he saying? He's saying in verse number 6, they're at it again. They're doing it again. Compare chapter 11, verse 6, to chapter 6 and verse 1. Go back. Just look at it. This is back before the flood. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. Uh, not verse 1, verse 5. Chapter 6, verse 5, and God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Chapter 6 and verse 5, he looks and sees the thought processes of this evil world, their hearts tending toward evil. Chapter 11 and verse number 6, he sees it again. They're going to do it again. The entire human race, pre-flood and post-flood, are all separated from God. And he says, if they're going to rebel against me, it's going to be flood season again. They're just going to keep going 
they're going to keep going away as they did before the flood. Romans 1, by the way, affirms that. Paul in Romans 1 says that uh, we can spiral down into the depths of depravity. The point is, all nations are separate from God. No matter where your ancestors live, no matter the language that was your first language, the no, no, no matter your heritage, you share the same problem that I do, separated from God by your sin. Romans 3.23 says it this way, for all, can we say it this way, all nations, will you read it with me? For all nations, do it one more time, for all nations have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It's true of all nations and it's true of all people. Every person of every race in every nation from every tribe and every language stands guilty before God. So, should I, should I ever have a racist view toward any person uh, with whom I don't share um, the, 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 uh, the race of being Caucasian? Should I, have, should I be racist toward Asians or toward blacks or, or toward uh, any other ethnic group? Of course not. We're all one family. None of us should have that. Number two, I need to recognize that the playing field is leveled. We're all separated from God. Here's the third thing you should know. It is that God chose one nation to rescue the rest. This is a beautiful thing, I think. We're all guilty. Every nation is guilty. And so God chose one of all the guilty nations. God chose one nation to rescue the rest. Here's what I think might have made a lot of sense. And I think it's what these uh, inhabitants of the plain of Shinar might have been afraid of. It is it would have made a lot of sense for God to have just done another flood. Right? It might have made sense for God to say, I'm done with you people. I'm not even going to make any more people. I'm going to make puppies. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he said, I'm, I'm going to, he could have said, I'm just going to send another flood. But could he really have done that? No, because he said he wouldn't. Because there's a rainbow in the sky, right? That's his promise, Genesis 9. I'm never going to do it again. So rather than planning wrath, at this post-flood rebellion, he plans redemption. And before you even get out of chapter number 11, look back, look back at chapter 11 and verse number nine. God sent the confusion. He confounded their language. He sent them scattering all these families, all these tribes of people scattering all around the earth. That's chapter 11, verse 9. Look at chapter 11, verse 10. These are the generations of Shem. So in the very next verse, after his scattering them, in the very next verse, he says, let me tell you the generations of Shem. And if you track it, we're not going to mark them all, but, but if you begin in verse 10 and you start tracking the generations, the sons and the grandsons and the great-grandsons of Noah through the line of Shem, when you arrive in chapter 11 and verse number 26, it says, And Terah lived 70 years and begat Abram, or Abraham. If y'all are listening, shout amen. When they rebelled in Genesis 11, God could have destroyed them again. He could have planned wrath again, but rather than planning wrath, he planned redemption. And in the very same chapter where he scatters them, he says, I'm going to choose. Out of all these scattering families going in all these directions, I'm going to choose this one. And he chooses Shem, and then through his generations, chooses Abraham. 
And through Abraham, he's going to enter into a covenant called the Abrahamic covenant. Are you tracking with me? Because Abraham will have a son named Isaac. And Isaac will have a son named Jacob. And Jacob will have a son named Judah. And through that family of Judah will come one named Jesus Christ who will redeem the nations. In fact, look at chapter number 12 and verse number 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and to, from thy father's house to a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation. And I will bless thee and make thy name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the, you see it? The families of the earth be blessed. If you read that from Genesis 10's perspective, all the families of the earth are trudging off to some other place in their own language and, and they're going over here to live and all the other families are going over here and all the other families are going over here and they're all going off into their places of lonely, sinful brokenness separate from each other. And in the middle of that, God takes one guy and says, I'm gonna make a covenant with you and through my covenant with you, all of these wandering families, I'm gonna bless them all. I'm gonna rescue those families through your family through the family of Jesus Christ. And that, of course, is the redemption that is found through his blood. And so there's one other thing that we should know. And to, to do this, to learn this, we need to go to the very other end of the Bible. So would you do that? Go to Revelation. And while you're turning to Revelation, let me just ask you to remember that this redemption planned in Genesis 11... We're going to Revelation chapter 5, by the way. This redemption planned in Genesis 11 through the family of Abram is for every nation. There's many nations, only one race. The entire human race and every individual within that human race is separated from God by sin. But God chose one nation, Israel, to rescue all the other nations through the gift of Jesus. And that redemption, who's it for? It's for every nation. Look at Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9. From heaven, here's the song. And they sung a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and you have, everybody say redeemed. You have redeemed us to God by your blood. Out of every kindred, it means every family, and out of every tongue, and out of every people, and out of every nation. And so if you read Genesis 11 and you say, how mean of God to take this close-knit family and drive them apart, these families wandering, these nations now separate from each other, know this, that God sent them out to populate the world, and then he chose one and said, now I'm going to reach back into those scattered nations and I'm going to begin to call out people who one day will be with me in heaven from every one of those tongues. Here's what I want you to know. That heaven is going to be a beautiful mosaic of, nation, of nationalities and languages and ethnicities. Amen? Beautiful. Do you know that in heaven, I don't really know what all we're going to eat in heaven, but there's going to be the best Mexican food you've ever had. Amen? And Chinese 
and, uh, and, um, and American, and uh, I don't know, I'm going to get in trouble if I keep going down that path, but whatever. All these different ethnic kinds of foods. And heaven is going to be this mosaic of all of the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth who have populated the earth now brought back together through the redemption offered through the one family, the family, the tribe of Judah through Jesus. And if heaven is going to be this beautiful mosaic, then shouldn't our church reflect that? And shouldn't our relationships reflect that? And shouldn't my friendships reflect that? This beautiful redemption that is ours through the grace of Jesus for every person in every tribe, of every language, in every nation. Let's pray together.